Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore where we're at with the COVID-19 pandemic, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And we begin to assess where we've come from, how we handled the pandemic in the U.S., what worked, and how we could have done better. We also discuss what we can do moving forward to save lives and truly put this pandemic behind us. My guest is Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease expert and professor of medicine at UCSF. We're at this moment in the pandemic where the numbers are low, people are getting vaccinated, everything's opening up. I've been uh, you know, going around San Francisco, the Giants A's games were sold out or nearly sold out. Uh, everyone's out and about at clubs, at dinner. So it feels uh, it feels as if we're through it. Where are we with the pandemic? You're describing the Bay Area specifically where we have such high rates of vaccination. So we're about 82 percent first dose vaccination rate in San Francisco. Same in multiple areas of the Bay Area. And then there was actually just a seroprevalence study published in the LA Times yesterday that showed that these degree of immunity is present throughout our state. There are places that have lower vaccination rates in Southern California, but they um, in a way made up for it, unfortunately, by having natural immunity because there's quite a bit of antibodies that are still present from having the surge affect Southern California more than Northern California. So we have rates of immunity that are essentially well into the 80s, probably 83% across the state. That's as good as it gets in terms of getting through a pandemic, meaning um, our cases are staying low as we've opened up, our hospitalization rates are staying low. We stopped tracking the people in the hospital because there's so few. Um, So we really are at a very good point in this state in the pandemic. What about Central California? I believe the vaccination rates are lower there. Are there any concerns about how things might play out in Central California from here forward? You know, the interesting thing about when you estimate how places are going is it is a combination of if you've seen the infection in the past, natural immunity and vaccination induced immunity. It is very true that the CDC is focusing only on vaccination rates. And so is the president. But you can see that cases are staying low in places who very unfortunately had a bad third surge or bad other surges. So there's still immunity in the population. You have to include natural immunity in your calculations. And so that's why as places are opening up around the country, we're seeing places like Missouri that didn't have terrible surges, who doesn't have a good vaccination rate, and they are seeing increased cases. Otherwise, you have Tennessee that's opened, um, more than us probably, and they had not as good vaccination rates as we do, but they had a lot of natural immunity and they had 27 cases in the state yesterday. So it really is that combination and that's true of Central California. There was something I read, it was a comparison of rates in California and rates in Florida. And while the article did acknowledge more people died in Florida and more deaths that could have been prevented, the numbers, at least according to this author, were not as divergent as the author expected. Are you able to address a little bit about how California responded versus a place like Florida and the risk benefit 
was not as risk as maybe people expected? It's a great question that I think we have to look back about how we managed, how Florida managed, because what we did here in California is we had more prolonged lockdowns than any other state. And that's that's just clear. And by doing that, by the time we got to our winter season of 2020, beginning of 2021, people were exhausted. And there really is a degree of pandemic fatigue and wearing masks and being away from each other all the time. And I do think it contributed to our worst third surge is that we didn't open in between um, these surges to the degree that allowed businesses to have some time to recover, to allow people to be together. It was a more prolonged lockdown environment. And Florida is pretty much the opposite. Um, they were not very locked down at all, except at the beginning when the entire country was locked down. And then they had less masks and more businesses being open and does speak to the fact that our approach, while more restrictive, didn't end up saving lives to the degree that I and I'm sure California would have hoped. When you have a prolonged pandemic, you do have to give people relief. Living in San Francisco, we've been even more restrictive than the state of California. And it has led to fatigue. On that point, it was a difficult one for me because are we bartering lives, you know, by opening up and, and just thinking about how do we protect lives? There are so many other considerations and where does it all fit in? It is. Yeah. It's important because the phrase harm reduction, which is an approach I've been um, really pushing with the, with the COVID pandemic. And it, it, I don't think it's an approach that California took. But harm reduction is the concept that you actually want to reduce infections. You really do. You want to reduce infections just as, as an approach that's more restrictive is, but it's by taking into account the real world conditions of people's lives. Essential workers have to work. People wanted to see each other. It is hard to be isolated. It is It has been bad in our mental health. And so harm reduction was a way to likely do both and have it kind of both ways that we could still reduce infections, but still not make it all about COVID and reducing the risk of one infection by putting it putting it into the context of everything we needed to do in the state of California. A survey asking people, do you think the pandemic is over? And unfortunately, this pandemic was infused with uh, politics in a way that I, I wish it weren't. I think a lot of us wish it weren't. Uh, but you know, along party lines, you know, more Republicans than Democrats said, hey, it's over. So what do you have to say to people who say, hey, it's over? You know, it's a very interesting question because this did become profoundly political. This pandemic and by no means is over worldwide, as we all know. And in fact, um, all I can think about uh, is the fact that of all the vaccines given out, 0.3% have been given out in low-income countries. That means that surges and deaths and needless suffering will happen because we don't have equitable vaccine access. And I feel like that's the only thing to think about. In terms of this country, the United States, there are places truly with high population immunity, like California, um, like Maryland, like uh, many other states that have vaccinated fast and also had natural immunity, where you can call the pandemic important to monitor, keep on watching for hospitalizations and cases, but it is over in that sense of we have been fortunate enough to have these high rates of immunity, and we have been fortunate enough to have these vaccines roll out, roll out quickly, and a large percentage of the population take it, 70% of those over 30 have taken the vaccine. And there was an important article by my colleague at Johns Hopkins that said the acute public 
health emergency in the United States is indeed over. Because what he was saying is the hospitals are simply not full. They're just not. There are very few people in the hospitals with COVID because we actually chose to, to take the vulnerable and those who would be more likely to be hospitalized older and get them vaccinated first. So in that sense, the acute public health emergency is over. The entire pandemic is not even remotely over. And in terms of it dividing along party lines, I think it's fair to say that Republicans thought more about school openings or business impact than Democratic states did. It is important now for Democratic states to think about the impact on schools openings and how important that is for kids and the impact on small businesses to decide when your population levels immunity is high, your hospitalizations and cases are low, to be able to go back to those important principles as in governing as well, which frankly, the red states have done more of. And it's time for us to come together yeah. and have some real good policy conversations about this. If I think of anyone who can unify us, I, I actually do think it's President Biden in the sense that like he is sort of thinking about infrastructure and thinking about businesses. He's been talking about schools. Like we have had a different take in red and blue states on the pandemic. And we don't want the red states to not admit the incredible effectiveness of the vaccines because that's as sciencey as it gets. There's nothing more sciencey than vaccines. I was just connected with a, a friend of mine who's not getting vaccinated because they've been reading things about people dying from the vaccines, which my understanding is that's not happening because it would be shut down. Can you address the concerns of people who have been reading information such as that and how we might be able to talk to each other about the vaccines? Yes, I think that's a really great question. And I understand the concern because what happens, the only way that we can assess vaccine safety is there's a system called VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting Systems, where you can put into the CDC anything that happens and say, could that have been from the vaccine? Now. Um, people, unfortunately, do die from other things, especially people who are older. And uh, sometimes what it can look like in the VAERS system is that there are deaths that are approximately around the time of the vaccine, but it's not actually because of the vaccine. Two things are happening with certainty. Death happens with certainty um, in a population and the most rapid mass vaccination program in history. We are giving out so many vaccines. Um, and so they get connected, but they're not connected. And when there's a signal that's truly elevated, that's in relationship to the vaccine, that's more than, a, than the expected rate that's happening in a population, like mild heart inflammation in young people with the vaccine, VAERS will note that, the entire CDC system will note that, and then look at it. So no People are not actually dying at higher rates because of the vaccine. I understand that that information can be put together in a way that's really deceptive and um, scary. And no, I mean, these vaccines would not be given out as the biggest mass vaccination program in history if they weren't safe. They're also incredibly effective. And the proof is in the pudding in that you can see that cases, hospitalizations, deaths, all of that is coming down from COVID. And we are not seeing excess death rates from anything else. So these vaccines are pretty effective and safe and kind of amazing. And they're the only thing to get us through this pandemic. If you look at what's going on and what just happened in India or many other places, this is now South Africa is the net latest place I'm looking at. So many death and suffering 
uh, because they don't have access to these great vaccines. And I, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, when there was the clotting issue, there were just how many people? It was 15 total in some. Um, and then there was a few more that had a clot. And what I mean by that is it was a one in a million rate after 50. And then it was a seven in a million less than 50. And we haven't actually had any other clots since that first description of the clot. So out of 12 million doses given, very low, low, low rate of an adverse effect. Right. And they shut that vaccine down to confirm that. Yes. And I thought that should hopefully increase trust and transparency that like it was recognized as a safety concern. There was a mechanism that was similar to AstraZeneca, which they've been seeing in Europe and the UK. So shut it down for 10 days, looked at it, put a warning label on it, but also put it into context of how low that risk is. And that there's treatment, by the way, and that there's also warning signs of this low adverse effect. We talk about how things are going here and how things are going international. You mentioned South Africa, and I I was noticing, uh, I think Uganda and Australia have recently put lockdowns in place because they're seeing some uh, pockets of COVID spikes. You mentioned that was it 0.3% of the developing nation population has received the vaccine. What could we or developed nations have done differently so that that didn't happen, so that we'd be in a different place? I keep up it is so tragic that there have been more deaths in 2021 from COVID than there have been in 2020. Oh my God. Um, even though we had the vaccine as early as December 20. So more deaths in 2021. Yes. In the first six months of 2021 more deaths from COVID wow. uh, than we had in all of 2020 when we didn't have a vaccine. So the tool was here to fix the pandemic. The solution to the pandemic was, was there in December 2020. That's when we first got emergency use authorization of Pfizer and then Moderna. What could they have done and what could they still do now? I mean, I will say that the UNAIDS Secretary General said, this is the biggest test of our moral fiber, is what we do to distribute vaccine to everyone, regardless of cost, who needs it. Um, and I think there are five ways that we can still make this better. One is donation of vaccine doses. President Biden very admirably said he was going to donate vaccine doses, 80 million by the end of June. He actually has not. That was already considered quite of a low drop in the bucket of what we have, because it looks like, according to Duke, we have a 300 million surplus of doses. By making that promise, he was signaling to the rest of the countries that they need to donate vaccine. He then said that he'd buy 500 million doses um, ahead of the G7 uh, meeting. But again, those had to be purchased, those had to be distributed, and it actually has to happen fast. And that would allow the other G7 countries to do that fast. We are a pace setter. We are the, the, the country that has to do it. The third is waiving patents. I know that this is controversial, but it's waiving patents temporarily on the vaccine so that they can be made in country by anyone who has capability. India actually has a lot of capability, but they need the formula and they need to be able to make these temporarily, these vaccines off patent. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease expert and professor of medicine at UCSF. The fourth technology transfer is incredibly important. That's already happened. The WHO is gonna open a South Africa hub and bring the technology there. But again, these things have to happen quickly, because it's not like a slow burn. This is a fast moving disease. And then the fifth is we made a lot of money. Okay. The five tech companies, the big ones made $1.7 trillion extra during the pandemic. They made a lot of money. And if they took 2% of their income, they made 
they can actually vaccinate the world. So let's more philanthropy, more big tech, more U.S. urging um, philanthropy. To me, that it's that simple. I think about this a lot. Why is money the number one driver? Yes, I understand we all need money. But if you've got such excess, which we do in so many ways, excess vaccine, the idea of the public good, I would love to see us forward that a bit more. Yes, I totally agree. And like, I also think, you know, everything's about the Delta variant right now. Well, the virus will stop mutating once you've tamped down transmission worldwide, <laughs> period. It's that simple. Like the only way it can mutate is when it spreads. And we have not tamped down transmission worldwide. Indeed, clearly we're in a worse situation if you look at the overall equation in June 2021 than we were at the beginning. You know, that was actually my very next question to you, because the idea that, well, if, if I've got the vaccine, then I'm OK. And I always go back to Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Mask of the Red Death, you know, how they everyone got into their little compound. They had a party. And then, of course, that whatever whatever was killing everybody in that story shows up. It's not enough in a pandemic to just take care of yourself. It is true that taking care of everyone does take care of yourself. It is a roundabout selfish thing, I guess. We're totally in it together in a pandemic. Totally agree. Yeah, it is selfish, actually. It's fine to be selfish. It, it, it affects us if the pandemic is raging somewhere else, especially specifically with the respiratory virus. In terms of respiratory virus, everyone affects each other because it's so easily transmittable. So there is no doubt that we're in this together. And it could happen really quickly with these five things. Like um, vaccines could get out really quickly and we could mass vaccinate by the end of 2022. We could. We could if we had the, the global world. Okay, so you brought up the Delta variant and then I'm reading about the Delta Plus. Those variants are, my understanding is, more transmissible, potentially more virulent. What does that mean for, let's start, I guess, with unvaccinated people in the U.S. Just to put it cleanly, what are all these variants do, including Delta? Um, they're just more fit. And what fit means is that if they're still going to be circulating virus, it's the one that's going to take over. So in an increasing way, if there's any virus swabbed in the nose, it's going to be the variant that's the most fit. And um, Delta is the most fit at this point, more fit than, than Alpha or Beta or Gamma. Alpha was that UK B117 and Beta was the South Africa and Gamma was the Brazil, and then this was identified in India. So, okay, it's more fit. It actually, there isn't clearly any evidence that it's more virulent. And what I mean by that is it doesn't seem to cause death at a higher rate or hospitalizations at a higher rate per case. So as our cases have gone down in this country, um, we can look at a ratio called the hospitalizations over case ratio. And the cases have been going down and the hospitalizations haven't been increasing proportionally. So it doesn't look like people need to go to the hospital more from a Delta variant than they did from the ancestral strain. So that's good. And that's true in the UK and everywhere else. And then importantly, they don't evade your, your vaccine response. And that's, that's also really important because it can make people feel really scared when they're vaccinated, when we talk so much about the Delta variant. But you are vaccinated. You are someone who is safe from the Delta variant. You have T cells that line up across the entire spike protein, like a whole spike protein that has some mutations in it, like the Delta variant has 13 mutations. You have 100 T cells from your vaccine that line up across that. So 13 isn't going to phase your immune system. But for the unvaccinated, it is this population that the Delta is more likely to get to, in fact, because it's more fit. And it means that places with pockets of people aren't sure they want to vaccinate 
and they're unvaccinated adults, there are increasing cases in those areas. Missouri is our main hotspot right now. Really, the point is that these vaccines are available and to get vaccinated is is really the right thing to avoid getting infected, especially with a more fit virus. Possible or probable, it's possible that a vaccine mutation could more greatly affect the spike protein. And that's where we worry about getting around the vaccine immunity. Am I correct there? I would love to explain that. But to explain it, I have to take a step back and I just explain one quick thing, which is memory B cells and memory T cells. Okay. So the way to explain that is two major arms of the immune system, B cells, T cells. Okay. What do B cells do? They're the ones that produce antibodies. Antibodies are measured when we measure them in the lab, just across a couple of places on the spike protein. We don't measure antibodies across the whole width of the spike protein. T cells, however, when we measure them in the lab, because it uses this fancy flow cytometry machine, you can measure T cells lining up across the whole spike protein. And the vaccines do induce a complex T cell response that To put it really simply, say your spike protein is 100 blocks long, 100 little pieces long. There are 100 T cells that line up across those 100 little pieces. We call them epitopes. And so if you have mutations in the spike protein that are 13 of them, you've knocked out 13 of those pieces, but you still have 87 pieces that your T cells are going to fight and you're going to fight that spike protein. And then your question is, oh, well, can that spike protein keep on mutating and mutating and mutating until it evades a hundred of them? Probably not, because if the spike protein looks that different than its old ancestral strain, it won't even be able to infect you. Viruses cannot mutate to infinity. It's why pandemics always end um, if you have an effective vaccine. They will always end. And so, no, I don't think we're ever going to evade immunity. And then the one thing that I want to say about memory B cells Memory B cells that are called memory B cells when they go into the bank. And where's the bank? Your bank is lymph nodes, bone marrow. That's where memory B cells hide out. And then if they're needed, they'll produce antibodies if they see the virus again. There was a paper just yesterday in Nature, got a lot of attention, that after vaccination, you form really high amounts of memory B cells in your lymph nodes. Uh, Three, four, six, seven weeks after just your first dose of a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you get lots of memory B cells. Add that with another paper last week from Oregon Health Sciences University that shows if these memory B cells in the future see a variant, they're not going to produce antibodies to some old ancestral strain. They're going to produce antibodies to the strain that they see in front of them, the variant that they see in front of them. They're going to produce it against the delta or the gamma or the beta or whatever they see. Putting those two papers together make me really confident that our immune system from vaccines, even from natural infection, but from vaccines are going to combat variants. And so that I'm not worried about. I'm not worried about us ever breaking through or the virus being able to mutate so much that it breaks through um, our immunity. I'm more concerned about in this interim period getting everyone vaccinated. On that note, I wanted to ask about those who are immunocompromised. I've read a lot about transplant patients, and I've transplant patients in my family, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune disorders. Should we be concerned about our loved ones facing those things? It is about the complexity of the immune system um, and the redundancy of the immune system, which is evolutionarily designed to make it if you have one arm of your immune system down from these conditions that you just said, or from chemotherapy, for example, or the people I treat, people living with HIV, 
that you will have another arm of your immune system, hopefully that will come and have a good response to the vaccine. So there is a study going on at UCSF where they looked at people with B cells being down because of treatment for multiple myeloma and then their T cells are fine in response to the vaccines. The problem is it actually takes a research lab to measure T cells. There is a commercial T cell test available, but it's not that great. And the NIH is putting money into better T cell assays. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because you're immunocompromised, you don't have a good response to the vaccine. Go to your doctor and talk about the complexity and ask if the T cells could be measured if, if antibodies are down. And then the second thing I would say about being immunocompromised is the reason we're all in this together is the lower our cases and go from everyone else getting vaccinated, we protect our unvaccinated. And that doesn't actually mean immunocompromised. That means children who can't get vaccinated yet. Our case and hospitalizations are so low in California that when I think about an immunocompromised person walking around, I tell them, please know, just like my 11-year-old who isn't vaccinated, that I feel you're safe because of just very little COVID being out there. And so put that in your equation and your advice when you when you talk to people who are living with immunosuppression. We talked a little bit about the social response, uh, both during the pandemic and now the transition. Are there any practices that we adopted during the past year and a half that you'd like to see us keep? You will hear other infectious disease doctors say that we should mask every winter um, because we want to avoid flu or colds. Um, I personally actually don't believe that. And the reason I don't, and this goes back to um, a meeting that I was at at the NIH called the NIH Microbiome Project. This actually shows us that we do need exposure to mild pathogens like colds to increase the what's called microbial diversity in our body and also increase immunodiversity. I'm not saying that anyone wants to even think about getting a cold right now um, <laughs> because we just came off a terrible pandemic. But in the future, it isn't actually the right approach to avoid all mild pathogens in terms of how we see our immune system. But you will hear other infectious disease doctors say the opposite and say we want to avoid all colds and flu and, and mask every winter. Um, and I'm looking at that in kind of a long view. Um, and I don't actually believe that. But I also am really into the immune system and think about the immune system more than anything else I can think of. Um, and then in terms of other practices, Shaking hands was never necessarily uh, preventative against um, COVID because it spread as a respiratory virus. I don't think that distancing is necessary when you're vaccinated. Ventilation is a good thing, um, meaning ventilation in spaces will reduce allergies and pollen and other, other problems. And so keeping ventilated spaces is, I think, a good practice for the future. What about a country such as uh, Asian countries that already mask, I guess, when they're sick or to prevent pollution and inhalation? Would you like to see us maybe adopt some of those practices? So they definitely do still mask. And there are many countries who since SARS masked. So there was a pandemic and it really affected East Asian countries more mainly, actually, there were only 8,100 cases and it was mostly in East Asia. And so then there is this continued practice. The long view from the NIH Microbiome Project is that autoimmune diseases, cancers, and allergies are actually increased with lower exposure to pathogens, lower exposure to what we need to see in the environment to keep ourselves diverse. They've actually looked at ecologically 
um, countries that don't mask and countries that mask and see higher rates of those autoimmune and other long-term problems where you are avoiding too many pathogens and are too clean. So that's a long view. For right now, anyone wants masks this winter, everyone should be welcome to. This is why I'm so thankful to have had you on the show because it's such good common sense based in science information. I so appreciate this. I do understand with all these talks of variants, people can get really scared. And I don't actually think it's fair to scare people because mutations along a virus is common and it's not going to you know, break through our immunity. And I, I don't like that kind of fear-based dialogue. And importantly, children are three times less likely to get infected with the same exposure. This is a household study in the Lancet last fall with the same exposure than adults, little children who can't yet be vaccinated. And they're half as likely to spread if they do get it. And so children are so much lower risk. The Delta variant should not perturb any plans that we have for school openings in the fall. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease expert and professor of medicine at UCSF. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.